0: Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story.
1: God, you who seat a table where all are invited, may we find ourselves welcome guests with those who have been excluded and marginalized. Amen. You may be seated. During the season of Epiphany, the church basks in the light of Christ, which is revealed to us. But if we pay attention, then contrary to our expectations, we find the light of God shining out today from the marginalized as God listens attentively to the voice of cries from the wilderness. God is revealed to the oppressed in ways the powerful do not know, and so our salvation is wrapped up in listening to their voices. This year, we've been returning to our series, Voices from the Wilderness. This is one of my favorite times of the year. The series situates us as attentive listeners to theological voices that cry out from the margins of our society. In past years, we've listened to the voice of black theology, feminist theology, and Latin American liberation theology. And we also listened to eco-theology, indigenous theology, and womanist theology. Four weeks ago this year, we listened to the voice of mujerista theology, giving voice to the Latina experience of God. And two weeks ago, we listened to the voice of Minjung theology, coming from the exploited and oppressed of Korea. Today we turn to the final voice we'll explore in this this year's series, the Dalit Theology, which comes out of India. As with every voice we're considering, there is so much depth and richness, and so much we can't get to in the time we have. But I hope that by representing even a small part of their thought, we come to see these voices as vital partners in the way that we think about God. So. Dalit theology as a discipline emerged in the 1970s in India during a time of upheaval, political activism, and violence against the Dalit people. The term Dalit comes from the Sanskrit dal, and it means burst, split, broken or torn asunder, downtrodden, scattered, crushed, and destroyed. This word is a self-identification which is used by the approximately 16% of Indians who live as sub-caste or out or untouchables who exist below the caste structure of India. The term itself, Dalit, dates back to the 18th century but it only really came into wide use in the 1970s during the liberation activist Dalit Panther movement woven tightly into India's social structure is its ancient caste system, which divides people into social strata of greater or less worth or purity and different roles depending on the caste. In an early Hindu scripture, the Purusha Sukta, we read, when they, the gods, divided the primal man into, into how many parts did they divide him? The Brahmin was his mouth, the arms were made the prince, his thighs were the common people, and from his feet the serf was born. And so this refers to these four caste levels: the priestly, the ruling, the merchant, or, or the middle class, and the serfs. And these castes, these four larger groups, are actually broken up into thousands and thousands of subcastes uh, that determine one's access to political power, wealth, religious position, who you can marry, where you can live, and what education is available to you. But below these castes, are the Dalit or the avarias, the casteless? George Uman of United Theological College in Bangalore, India, explains, beyond the pale of society, outcasts were considered extremely polluted and were assigned occupations such as removal of dead animals, scavenging and cleaning of the village. They were barred from using water tanks and public roads. Temple doors were closed on them. According to the caste hierarchy, the Dalit were given impure work and thus made to live outside the villages for fear that they would pollute those living within the caste system. Arvind P. Nirmal, who is uh, one of the leading and, and probably the first Dalit theologian, writes When my Dalit the- ancestor walked the dusty roads of his village, the people tied a tree branch around his waist so he would not leave any unclean footprints and pollute the roads. Dalits were prevented from learning to write, and they continue today to be excluded from education. So a great proportion are illiterate. The arrival of Christianity in India, unfortunately, didn't really help much. Early missionaries distinguished between religion, which had to be addressed, and culture, which could be left as it is. And they determined that the caste system was merely culture, and so it did not need dismantling. Indeed, much of the missionary effort was aimed at the upper Brahmin caste because they assumed that there would be kind of a trickle-down effect, right? If you converted all the Brahmins, then everyone else would follow. Despite the fact that Dalits today make up between 60 to 80 percent of the Christian population in India, they have little to no voice in any of the theological seminaries or leadership of various denominations. Uh, Archbishop George Zur of the Catholic Church wrote, Though Catholics of the lower caste form 60% of Catholic church membership, they have no place in decision-making. Dalit converts are treated as lower caste not only by high caste Hindus, but by high caste Christians also. In rural areas, they can't own or rent homes. Separate places are marked out for them in parish churches and in burial grounds. So, within these conditions, Dalit theology arose to give expression to Dalit voices. It was to be Dalit theology for Dalits and by Dalits. Uh, in the words of Dalit theologian James Massey, Dalit theologians are making an affirmation about the need for a theological expression which will help them in their search for daily bread and their struggle to overcome a situation of oppression poverty, suffering, injustice, illiteracy, and a denial of human dignity and identity. Dalit theology as a whole focuses on three main themes. One, a critique of the Brahminization of Christianity, meaning the privileging of the upper castes in Christianity. Two, addressing the social, economic, and political injustice that's experienced by Dalits. And three, creating this truly indigenous expression of Dalit voices doing their own theology. Now, as I've been reading Dalit theology in preparations for this sermon, one thing that has really stuck out to me and, and what I want to focus on today is the problem of purity, a problem of purity and the politics of disgust. Okay, if you've ever tried to read through the Bible in a year, this connects, I promise. If you've ever tried to read through the Bible in a year, in, in order, right, cover to cover, you've probably done what the rest of us have done. Genesis, no trouble. Kind of weird in some parts, but good stories overall. Moving on. Exodus, okay, exciting, right? Freedom, seas, plagues, great. There's some tedious bits about, like, how to make all the stuff for the tabernacle, but, you know, you can get through that. And then seemingly out of nowhere, you hit Leviticus, And there are codes on codes about what you can touch and what you can eat and the weaving of fabrics and some really gnarly stuff about skin diseases. And that's not even to mention the stuff about sexuality and gender. What on earth? Okay, so maybe let's try the New Testament. And you hop over there. Way better and better yet, Jesus seems to toss all of these codes out by the wayside. He's healing on the Sabbath. He's touching lepers and corpses. He's talking to Samaritan women, and he's teaching that no foods will make you impure. And so we're like, okay, great. I don't even have to worry about all those codes. Irrelevant. Now, one of the reasons I think we have a hard time understanding the Levitical laws is that we tend to read the Bible through a 16th century lens, We tend to read the Bible as if the main conflict is between the Reformers and the Catholic Church of the 16th century. And the main conflict is, okay, how do we avoid the wrathful judgment of God? And the Old Testament and the Pharisees say, law, law law-keeping, keep the rules. And the New Testament and Jesus call for faith in grace. Right, So on that framework, the point of the liturgical Codes is works righteousness. Do all these things because it's the law, and then you will be free, you'll be saved. But it can be hard to see what the moral point of, say, you know, avoiding polyester would be. But purity codes are embedded in a very different understanding of humanity and religion. Uh, the main question for purity-oriented cultures is, who gets to sit at the table? Or to say it another way, who is human enough to share the resources? And whose presence, on the contrary, would pollute the community and is therefore excu- excluded? This is much closer to the way that a caste system works. Uh, the politics, the forming of community has at its center a politics of disgust. The outcasts are polluting they're associated with work and conditions that evoke disgust, like carrying away corpses or refuse, cleaning latrines. So, in a politic of purity and disgust, now see this here. In a politic of purity and disgust, when the main thing is who's too polluted to belong, what happens when Christianity shows up and talks about God as holy and pure? What does that mean for the Dalits who are considered polluted? Dalit theologian Peniel Rukjamar's words really grabbed my attention. He writes, "...the association of the divine with the holy and the pure proved to be foundational for the oppressively hierarchical caste system. Namely, notions of purity and pollution have proved oppressive to Dalit communities. Such symbolization of the divine projected the Dalits, who were considered polluted and polluting, as being the very antithesis of the pristinely pure divine being." In a caste system oriented around purity, proclaiming a God who is pure, who is holy, condemns the lower castes and the outcasts, and elevates the higher castes. And this is what has happened in traditional Indian Christianity. Now into this background, Dalit theology makes a shocking claim. God is not pure. In fact, God is Dalit. Jesus is Dalit. Joseph Prabhupada Diam writes, In the ritual practices of the dominant religions, anything polluting and polluted distances the human from the divine. Inversely, in the Dalit imagination of the divine, the dichotomy of purity and pollution is not only dismantled, but pollution is privileged as necessary in the divine-human interaction and the life-giving and life-saving acts of the divine. To be divine is to be polluted. Now, I think we need to hear that and sit with that because that is meant to be shocking. To be divine is to be polluted. I actually think this is closer to the experience of Jesus that was had by the first century Jews than what we often think of today. Right? We have these passages about Jesus Christ. A stumbling block to Jews and to Gentiles alike. It was offensive to talk about God as human. I think this sheds a lot of light on what Jesus is up to in his ministry touching lepers, breaking Sabbath. Talking to Samaritan women, calling all foods clean, not washing ritually between meals, before meals, into this purity culture where the question is who gets to sit at the table. Jesus situates himself firmly with the impure, the ones who would be excluded from the table. If you want to sit at table with the divine, Jesus says, well, then you're going to have to go sit with the so called polluted because God is polluted. It's not just that Jesus is on the side of the impure. Jesus himself becomes one of them. First, in Jesus, God is seen as a servant God. So in Dalit theology, far from polluting, serving is recast as divine. Uh, again, A.P. Nirmal writes, The amazing claim of a Christian Dalit theology will be that the God of the Dalits does not create others to do servile work, but does the servile work God's self. Servitude is innate in the God of the Dalits. Since we, the Indian Dalits, are this God's people, service has been our lot and our privilege. Our housemaid and the sweeper who cleans the commodes and latrines are, truly speaking, our servants. Let us be prepared for a further shock. Are we prepared to say that my housemaid, my sweeper, is my God? It is precisely in this sense that our God is a servant God. To speak of a servant God, therefore, is to recognize and identify him as a truly Dalit deity. Another writer points out, God becomes so identified with polluting professions that encountering God and embracing Dalit becomes synonymous. If this is true, then to become more and more like the divine is not to avoid impurity, but it's to reject the division between pure and impure. Instead, the divine elevates the dignity of those whose lives we have considered disgusting by stepping in and shouldering their load. But it's in the cross that Jesus is most clearly seen as Dalit, because he experiences there not only the impurity, but also the suffering of the Dalits. Again, A.P. Nirmal writes, On the cross he was the broken, the crushed, The split, the torn, the driven asunder man. The Dalit in the fullest possible meaning of that term. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He cries aloud from the cross. The son of God feels he is God forsaken. That feeling of being God forsaken is at the heart of our Dalit experiences and Dalit consciousness in India. It is the Dalitness of the divinity and humanity that the cross of Jesus symbolizes. So, One way of reading the central point of Jesus' ministry and crucifixion is that God decidedly answers the question, who can sit at the table, by himself becoming the impure and the suffering. So if you are impure and suffering, then by definition, this is your table. So what does this say to us in America? I think it can be tempting to think that Dalit theology has little to say to us because we might think our culture is not a caste system. And our system is not based on purity. However, Isabel Wilkerson has argued really convincingly in her book, Caste, that America in fact does live on a unspoken caste system. For us, it's not purity pollution that is the issue, it's race as the supposed justification for a stratified society. I wanna quote Wilkerson at length, I think it's worth hearing. As a means of assigning value to entire swaths of humankind, caste guides each of us, often beyond the reaches of our awareness. It embeds into our bones an unconscious ranking of human characteristics and sets forth the rules, expectations, and stereotypes that have been used to justify brutalities against entire groups within our species. In the American caste system, the signal of rank is what we call race the division of humans on the basis of their appearance. In America, race is the primary tool and the visible decoy, the front man for caste. Race does the heavy lifting for a caste system that demands a means of human division, We may mention race, referring to people as black or white or Latino or Asian or indigenous, when what lies beneath each label is centuries of history and assigning of assumptions and values to physical features in a structure of human hierarchy. I would add to this uh, that we should, in, in addition to asking whether America has a hidden caste system that we're mostly not talking about, we should ask whether America has a hidden purity code. And here I'm not talking about purity culture in evangelicalism, that's its own issue, sideline. I mean, rather, America has a tradition of a politics of disgust. In her book, From Disgust to Humanity, the ethicist Martha Nussbaum argues, disgust has not gone away, it's gone underground. We still need to understand its force and why legal arguments based upon disgust are bad political arguments. A close study of the emotion of disgust and the ways in which it's been used politically through history will show how that emotion expresses a a universal human discomfort with bodily reality, but then uses that discomfort to target and subordinate vulnerable minorities. Wam argues that this disgust is behind not only racism, but also homophobia, transphobia, uh, and other forms of sexism in America and ableism today. If America really is a caste system, and I think Wilkerson's argument is really convincing, and I think it's well worth engaging if you haven't read it, and if there is a hidden purity code where disgust is the hidden driver that's behind racism and homophobia and transphobia and ableism then we are in much more similar a situation to India than you would think on first glance. And so here, too, we need to acknowledge that the Dalit Jesus not only sides with, but enters the experience of whoever is outcast. In Hebrews 13, we read an odd little verse. Therefore, Jesus also suffered outside the city gate in order to sanctify the people by his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp and bear the abuse he endured. Uh, Here the author of Hebrews is comparing Jesus to the scapegoat. So the scapegoat was a sacrificial animal uh, that would take the impurity, not the law-breaking, the impurity of the people, and they would send that animal out into the wilderness outside the camp so the impurity would go out away from the people. In the same way, the author says, Jesus is crucified outside the city to take the impurity, just as the scapegoat. In all of the voices we have listened to this year, we find Jesus outside the city. Jesus is the mestizaje, the in-between outsider. Jesus is minjung, the exploited and the oppressed. Jesus is dalit, the impure and polluted servant all of these voices ask us to leave behind the Jesus who is pure, the Jesus whose divinity is other. For when we worship the pure Jesus, his holiness and his perfection actually serves to maintain the power of the powerful and to justify the exclusion of the outcast. Instead, the mujerista the Minjung, the Dalit, ask us to see the Jesus who very willingly becomes whatever we consider polluted. Because Jesus situates himself firmly with the impure, the ones who would be excluded from the table. And so, if you want to sit at table with the divine, Jesus says, we're going to have to go sit with the so-called polluted because that is where and who God is. Pearl Church, we talk frequently about common table. I think it's easy for us as we talk about sacred story and common table to imagine that this is our common table and that people like us sit at this table. But the common table is Jesus' table, and Jesus is mestizaje, Jesus is minjong, Jesus is dalit. And so the common table we approach is not our table. In fact, it will always be we who are the guests at a table that always belongs to whoever is on the margins. Let's pray. God of the excluded and the marginalized, we pray we will find ourselves guests at your common table where all are welcome.